Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump has just been disqualified from the primary ballot in the state of Maine, making it the second state to remove him because of his role on January 6th. Also, CNN obtaining exclusive new recordings that show just how frantic that effort to carry out the fake elector scheme really was just days before that Capitol attack, almost chartering a private jet to fly copies of bogus ballots that were stuck in the mail. Also, Nikki Haley now says, of course, slavery caused the Civil War. That was not her answer last night. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. History has been made once again tonight, not the kind that Donald Trump wants, as he has now been disqualified from the primary ballot in Maine, a decision that comes nine days after Colorado's Supreme Court ruled that Trump is ineligible to be on that state's ballot because of his role in the January 6th insurrection, therefore barring him under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Here it is in black and white from Maine's Democratic Secretary of State, Shanna Bellows, who said that he was, quote, not qualified to hold the office of the president. This is a ruling from the state's top election official, not a court, I should note. She has already paused her decision for 20 days in case there is an appeal, which the Trump legal team says tonight that there will be in the coming days. They had tried to get Bellows removed, actually, from making this decision earlier this week, citing her social media post. But she says she didn't make this decision lightly. Quote, I am mindful that no secretary of state has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I am also mindful, however, that no presidential candidate has ever before engaged in an insurrection. Moments ago, she explained her decision here on CNN. The oath I swore to uphold the Constitution comes first and foremost. The weight of the evidence brought forward under Maine law in the cha- Section 336 challenge that was brought made it clear that Mr. Trump was aware of the tinder he laid in a multi-month efforts to challenge the legitimacy of the 2020 election. And then in an unprecedented and tragic series of events, chose to light a match. The former president's team has argued that efforts like what has happened here in Maine tonight are undemocratic and that they are done by people who are worried about facing Trump on the ballot. Tonight, his campaign said, quote, we will quickly file a legal objection in state court to prevent this atrocious decision in Maine from taking effect. Joining me tonight, former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams and Norm Eisman, who is the House Judiciary Special Counsel in Trump's first impeachment trial, both are seen in legal analysts. Norm, now that you've read this decision, what stood out to you? Uh, Well, Caitlin, it's a powerful analysis on three fundamental legal points, although it's full of very important holdings. The first point is that as the Secretary of State under Maine law, Secretary Bellows finds she has the authority 
to disqualify a presidential candidate under the 14th Amendment. That's why we're seeing this variation with Colorado and now Maine on one side and other states disagreeing. It's about the power. Uh, that's unique to the states, but her second major holding is not. And uh, uh, it has national implications. That is that the 14th Amendment uh, bars a presidential candidate who engaged in insurrection. Uh, I think that's correct. And uh, the majority of commentators agree with that reading, including extremely conservative commentators. The third question is a factual one and the most explosive of them all. She finds that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection under the 14th Amendment. And uh, she relies on the January 6th committee hearings. And there is a powerful factual basis for that as well. It's a historic opinion by Secretary Bellows. It is historic, but Elliot, does she have the authority as the Secretary of State to, to make this decision to, to kick someone off the ballot like Trump? She has the authority as the Secretary of State of Maine, and, and frankly, every state under the Constitution has the ability to set its standards for who can be on a ballot. But let's be clear, and this is, you know, and I largely agree with Norm's analysis here, but this is not a question for Norm Eisner or Elliot Williams to be sorting out here. This is teed up right now for the Supreme Court because there are really open, very serious legal questions to be answered here that frankly, the framers of the country a couple hundred years ago just left open and didn't answer. Number one, who decides what an insurrection is or even what the definition of insurrection is. And so again, this is a this is powerfully written prose in this opinion, but she's re largely relying on the opinion of a law professor to lay out what the definition of insurrection is, number one. Number two, do you need to be committed of the crime of insurrection in order to be barred from the ballot? Now, again, I would say no, based on what I've read and my understanding of it, but that's for the United States Supreme Court to decide. And then number three, um, you know, what do you do when different states now have vastly different notions of what is defined under the definition or under an umbrella of insurrection. So all of these very complex constitutional questions still have to be sorted out. And this is, uh, as we know well, uh, not the final word on it. And it, and it just, it's sort of Supreme Court, are you listening? This is sort of why the country has a Supreme Court, like it or not, to resolve difficult questions like this. Well, Norm, do you agree with that, that, that this makes this all the more urgent that the Supreme Court does get involved? Um, I, I do agree. And of course, uh, the final word will lie with the Supreme Court. I think the power of the Colorado opinion, the power of the main opinion is the weight of the evidence and the law is uh, on the side of these opinions. That doesn't mean the Supreme Court will, of course, see it the way that Elliot or I do. They often uh, do diverge. Um, but I, I want to just lift up two points that uh, implicit in Elliot's analysis, Caitlin. The first is that um, uh, the extraordinary moment that we're in, that the leading candidate of one of the major political parties has been found by the January 6th committee, by the Colorado courts, including the Colorado Supreme Court, now by uh, the main secretary of state to have participated in an insurrection against our government. That's extraordinary. And there's a lot of detail. This section of the opinion is 10 pages long, a lot of detail on why. And the second point is, I, I, I know there's some 
concern about um, these uh, conflicting opinions. They're making their way to the Supreme Court. I see this as a proud moment in our democracy. This is how our checks and balances are supposed to work. We should take a hard look at a candidate who implicates these 14th Amendment concerns of insurrection. And so this is American democracy in action. It's wrong, as some people are saying. Trump said in his uh, campaign statement uh, tonight that uh, it's uh, anti-democratic. It is never against American democracy to apply the United States Constitution. The question is, what does the Constitution say here? Well, Elliot, what do you make of that? Because the political argument here and surely what Republicans or the Trump team would argue is that it's a Democratic secretary of state who, you know, she had multiple social media posts that the, the Trump campaign had cited why she should be re- removed from this. She made very clear how she felt about January 6th. She called it a violent insurrection. She said that Trump should have been impeached. You know, the Colorado Supreme Court, that was a 4-3 ruling. You saw the, dis- the dissents in that. Uh, the January 6th committee, obviously we know how Republicans feel about that, given Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, two Republicans who are no longer members of Congress, were in that. I mean, what's the the other argument here of whether or not, you know, this is the authority that they have to make this decision and not the decision for the voters? Yeah. Well, number one, take it up with uh, Alexander Hamilton and uh, John Jay and uh, and James Madison for you know hundreds of years ago for giving that power to the states to determine how they would apportion or how they would work out. Uh, how elections would be run. Uh, there, you know, we've had ample opportunity to amend the Constitution over those, frankly, centuries, and the country has chosen not to do it. So, I, you know, I, I, I don't find that argument all that persuasive, number one. Number two, I don't know if you're going to hear the same criticism of the political appointments of uh, people ruling on these decisions once the Supreme Court rules, if in fact they do rule in favor of Donald Trump. It's very convenient to sort of pick on different aspects of our partisan system that has served the country so well when it serves uh, the argument or, you know, it serves the position you want to hold. And then I think more broadly speaking, Caitlin, what I find fascinating here is that after Bush versus Gore in 2000, the Supreme Court did take a reputational hit for sort of having been seen by many in the country as having thumbed the scale a little bit uh, with respect to an election. What happens here if, in fact, the Supreme Court weighs in a manner, in either direction, either in favor of the former president or not, but in a manner that seems yep. to have nudged the country in one direction that's very dangerous. Well, and I think John Roberts is kind of on Yeah, it certainly would be one of the biggest decisions before them since that decision of the 2000 election. Elliot Williams, Norm Eisen, as always, thank you both. And for more on this, I want to bring in New York Times senior political correspondent and CNN's political analyst, Maggie Haberman, because I think the question is, you know, we see all the Trump legal team, what they're saying, but how is Trump himself viewing the multiple efforts that have been playing out, two of them now successful, at least for now, to get him off the ballot? Look, what he's saying publicly is actually not that different than what he's saying privately to people, Caitlin, which is that this is undemocratic. This is an effort to, inter- you know, it's election interference. As we know, he is very good at projecting what he is accused of back onto other people. And it's not surprising that he's doing this here. He's genuinely, he's not happy about this. Uh, And it is true that a lot of people around him see this as politically helpful, but it's also yet another front they have to fight. And that comes when they're fighting any number of them. Yeah. Are they worried at all about the point that Norm was making there, which is that a secretary of state, even if she is a Democrat, 
the Colorado Supreme Court, the January 6th Congressional Committee, all of these you know, positions of authority are putting in writing that they do believe he was not only responsible for what happened that day and started it, but he fanned the flames of January 6th. Anything like that coming from an official source is not great for him. He knows that. His folks know that. It's not good for him long term, I should say. It's not good for him, certainly, if he is kept off the ballots. That That is just logistically problematic. But while this is fuel for him in a Republican primary, if he is the nominee in a general election, this is just objectively not a, a helpful fact set. It is not. It, it will be used in ads. It will be used on mailers. Um, it will be said at you know Democratic town halls over and over and over again. And there will be officialdom to point to saying that Trump did it. This is what didn't happen with the Senate trial for impeachment. This is what didn't happen for almost two years uh, from the DOJ. And now there is something that is, you know, quasi-official, um, at le- even if it's coming from, you know, folks who they're arguing are partisan. It's just not helpful to him. Does he seem confident at all that the Supreme Court, if they do choose to get involved here, will rule in his favor? His folks believe that it, they are going to rule in his favor, but he is never certain that anything is going to be the case until it's done. And, you know, he's been railing about this Supreme Court uh, for years now because despite the fact that he appointed three of the justices, they have not shown much interest in his election uh, cases or his election efforts. And so he doesn't really see them as consistently uh, being with him on any of those issues. And he doesn't have certainty that it will go his way. However, uh, a lot of people he listens to do think that this is likely the Colorado decision certainly is likely to get shut down and that the Supreme Court is going to have to take this up because it's clearly going to be other states now. Well, and to that point, I mean, I think that there are, you know, people who don't like the the way the court has tilted since the three justices he's put on there. But when it comes to, you know, the powers of the presidency and what he's had, they have had less of an appetite, as you wrote in your reporting last week, for, for supporting him on that. Absolutely. They have shown really very little appetite for getting involved in this. They did after Election Day in 2020. Um, you know, there has been no no sense that they are moving faster. They did not move quickly on the immunity question, which uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel, was asking them to do. There were no dissents on that, but that doesn't mean they won't take it up at a later date. Yeah, we'll wait to see what they do. Maggie Haverman, thank you for that. Coming up next year, inside the final push to overturn the 2020 election, exclusively obtained recordings of the scramble inside Trump world to fly fake elector ballots to Washington in time for the certification on January 6th. What happened when those bogus papers got stuck in the mail? The general counsel of the Trump campaign is freaked out. Nikki Haley, also tonight in damage control and the crucial days before the first votes in the 2024 election are cast, how she is trying to clean up her Civil War mess. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, CNN has obtained exclusive recordings that reveal just how chaotic the last-ditch effort was by then-former President Trump and his 2020 campaign to rush fake elector ballots from several states to the nation's capital. 
The goal, obviously, to get those fake ballots into the hands of former Vice President Mike Pence in a final push to overturn the 2020 election. The plan involved this haphazard chain of messengers, staffers for two sitting Republican members of Congress, and talks of scrambling the fake ballots onto a chartered private jet. jet. Yes, they did not actually get that far, but that was something that they had proposed doing. All of this was to ensure that the false certificates from Michigan and from Wisconsin got to the Capitol in time for the Electoral College certification that happened on January 6th. New emails and recordings show the new context in the dizzying scope of the unsuccessful plot, including the CNN-exclusive audio of pro-Trump attorney Kenneth Chesborough, who was the architect of the fake elector scheme, according to prosecutors, describing the chaos after Trump officials learned the fake ballots were stuck in the mail. The general counsel of the Trump campaign is freaked out that Roman reported that the Michigan votes are still in the sorting facility in Michigan, which doesn't look like they're going to get to Pence in time. So the, the general counsel of the campaign was alarmed and, and was chartering, well, they didn't have to charter a jet, but they did commercial. This is like, yeah, so this is a high level decision yeah. to get the Michigan and, and Wisconsin votes there. To, and they, they had to enlist a, uh, the, you know, a, a U.S. senator to, to try to expedite it, to get it, uh, get it to uh, uh, Pence in time. Here tonight, former senior investigative counsel for the January 6th Congressional Committee, Temadio Agonga-Williams. Remind me, did uh, Kenneth Chisborough tell your committee anything when you guys were uh, investigating this? Hey, he, yeah, he, he did. Right? He, he gave some details, but I think what prosecutors here are able to get Right. The devil's in, in, in the details. And I think what's showing here is that there are questions whether Ken Chesborough was going to be fully cooperating. We know he pled guilty to the felony in Georgia, but the scope of his cooperation is always hard to know when you're on the outside. This leaked recording today shows that he's really leaning into the role of cooperator. I mean, he's pointing fingers. He's giving, you know, kind of long form answers. And I think he's had what is often called the coming to Jesus moment, where he's accepting responsibility and he's going helping the prosecution teams across the country. So I think if I were his co-defendants, I'm incredibly worried because right now they, the government's scope of evidence is only expanding. And now anytime you're going to have someone in the room testifying to what they heard, especially when that's a co-defendant, that's all going to be admissible testimony. That stuff's going to be able to come in against the former president and Giuliani and others. And he's pretty aggrieved at how he feels that he was treated by other people who came and testified before, before at least the January 6th committee. Some of them are now his co-defendants. I mean, you think that this is, or they were his co-defendants before he pleaded guilty. You think this is bad news for, for those who haven't, the Rudy Giuliani's, the Mark Meadows, those types. For sure. I mean, if I'm a Rudy Giuliani or one of those folks that still has a pending case, what I'm hoping for is the half-hearted cooperation. I'm hoping for someone who's pleading guilty, who's basically pulling the Mark Meadows approach, kind of doing enough to stay out of trouble. It doesn't seem that that's what Ken Jesborough is doing here. It seems like he's leaning in, which is dangerous when you still have uh, outstanding charges against you. What about, okay, Matt Morgan. He was a top Trump campaign attorney. He may not be a familiar name to people who are watching, but he was a campaign attorney. And he testified before your committee. He kind of distanced himself from the fake elector scheme, said that was what Rudy Giuliani and others were doing. Kenneth Chesborough is saying, no, 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 no. He was much more involved in this and these 11th hour schemes of chartering planes and trying to get these copies of the fake elector ballots to Washington in time. 
I mean, he says his involvement seems to be pretty extensive. Is that how Matt Morgan portrayed it to the committee? It's not. And frankly, uh, you know, I was in the Matt Morgan uh, deposition and I I found this part of the reporting to be the most interesting. Uh, One common theme we often saw in talking to especially high level Trump campaign folks is this idea that there were the crazies and the normies, you know, short for like normal. And that was repeated again and again. And this refrain that Chesborough talks about, this idea that the normies backed off and Giuliani and others, the crazies came in and took over. That was a repeated theme that we were told. And I think what's interesting about the emails today is that it really counters that. Matt Morgan, who's put himself out there, at least at the committee, he is a traditional lawyer, um, one of the normies. But here, these emails are saying right up until the eve of January 6th, he was still taking actions and getting involved in ensuring that these fake electors were able to get themselves uh, the certificates to D.C., which was essential for this plan. So I think it truly undercuts what he told us. And I think it's um, that's something that his uh, his lawyers and him will have to answer going forward. So team normal and team crazy had a little bit of uh, mixing between the two of them. Timothy Oganga Williams, a fascinating reporting. Thanks for your analysis on that today. And for more on this, I want to bring in Trump's former White House communications director, Anthony Scaramucci. And I just am curious what this new reporting tells you about just how desperate the efforts. We knew that they were desperate, but but they were charter a plane to get copies of fake ballots because they were stuck in the mail, desperate to Washington. What do you make of that? Well, the the number one thing is that it was orchestrated by the president. So you have the normies and the abnormals, or whatever you want to call them. I think they're like Abby normies, Caitlin. But basically, the chief abnormal person was the president. So the president knew he lost the election. He did not want to leave power He was embarrassed by the loss. And so this is the most unique thing about power. When you're in that seat, you can push people around and get them to do things for you that they wouldn't necessarily do. I mean, I could only imagine what Vice President Pence was thinking if he were to have received those false elector statements. So so to me, this all leans back on the president. And it also ties back to the 14th Amendment, because if you're part of an insurrection as a sitting president, which is obviously a historic thing, uh, you really can't stand for election again. And so, I mean, that's very clear in the Constitution. So I think this really is another smoking gun in the case. And so many people think that the president's untouchable. Some people think it's going to strengthen his candidacy. But I do believe he's Al Capone here. Uh, and he eventually goes down as a result of all of this. And you think what you're referencing is what we're just talking about, these efforts to keep Trump off the ballot. You agree with those rulings in Colorado and Maine. Is that what you're saying? Well, it doesn't matter whether I agree with them or not. I think the Constitution is very clear. And so, so listen, those are Democratic legislatures that control those two states. But I think they have made a decision that the Constitution is with them. And so we'll have to su- see what the Supreme Court says. Supreme Court rarely, rarely gets a law like this wrong. I mean, this is a very serious constitutional issue. And even though a lot of these uh, justices are conservative, I think they will side with the 14th Amendment. It's, it's, yeah, it's black but- and white. Caitlin, I know you guys have debated this on the air and I've watched some of those debates. But this is black and white, you know, and just ask somebody like Professor Tribe how clear this is. But before, I mean, we're not even there yet. We're waiting to see what the Supreme Court decides. But I mean, right now, Trump is still on the ballot. The, the 
Colorado Supreme Court, obviously, they are, they're waiting to see what the decision is. Obviously, we know appeals are being made. But what we are away from, it's 18 days away from the Iowa caucuses. And not long ago, you predicted that, that Trump wouldn't make it this far. You were talking about all the legal pressures that he was facing, and you thought that he would drop, drop out before he actually got here. I mean, he hasn't yet. He doesn't seem like he is going to. Do you still think that? Well, I still think that that pressure is there. I think that the president's made a decision that staying in the race and being politically formidable uh, strengthens his cards in the situation. Um, but I do think that the pressure will be overwhelming. Unfortunately, the wheels of justice turn very slowly. And I, I would have thought a lot of this evidence that we're now seeing and that you guys are reporting on would have happened a few months ago. But uh, that evidence is coming. And so if this is a March or April situation, as opposed to an October, November situation, I think the outcome is the same. I don't think the president, President Trump, will be on the ballot representing the Republicans in 2024. I just don't, don't see that happening, given the magnitude of the evidence against him in terms of what he perpetrated on the 6th of January and the days prior to that. And you're obviously not going to vote for him, even if he is? Uh, well, no, I'm not going to vote for him. And again, I'm a patriot first and a partisan second. This is a constitutional issue. He is a systemic threat to the American democracy and the American experiment. And so whatever you think of his minute policies directionally, you can't put somebody like that in office. And I think you and I both know his team is very well organized. And if they win the presidency, they're going to want to expand the executive powers and crimp the democracy and ruin the checks and balances system, which has worked successfully uh, since the Constitution was written 230 years ago. So, no, no. And I will be working for who's ever running again. So if he gets on that ballot and he is the Republican nominee, uh, we will work tirelessly to stop him and we will explain to the American people what it means to lose their democracy. Because I don't I don't think people are as focused on that as they need to be. Every mm -hmm. one of the families that have arrived in this country have benefited from the flat, decentralized system. Uh, totalitarianism doesn't work. Dictatorships may get the trains to run on time for a few years, uh, but it's not a successful way to run America. It would really hurt the aspirational opportunity for the American citizens. So yes, I will be out there uh, advocating okay. why he can't be president again. Anthony Scaramucci, as always, thank you for your time. Good to be here. As if it were not difficult enough to beat Trump for the Republican nomination, Nikki Haley was had some momentum. She now has another big hurdle tonight, though, a cleanup. She says the word slavery after meandering initially in her response about the cause of the Civil War tonight. We'll tell you how she's cleaning up that remark. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
Nikki Haley cleaning up what happened at a New Hampshire town hall last night when she did not mention the cause of civil war or the cause of slavery when she was asked about the cause of the civil war. Of course, the civil war was about slavery. We know that. That's unquestioned, always the case. We know the civil war was about slavery. But it was also more than that. It was about the freedoms of every individual. It was about the role of government. I should note that today she was also saying that that person who questioned her without any evidence was a Democratic plant, the person at the town hall who asked her that question. Obviously, we do not have any evidence that that was the case. Nikki Haley saying this today. It was definitely a Democrat plant. That's why I said, what does it mean to you? And if you notice, he didn't answer anything. The same reason he didn't tell the reporters what his name was. Of course, regardless of who is asking the question, it should be a fairly easy one to answer. The moment, however, bringing to light her history as the governor of South Carolina. She did at that time draw national attention when she removed the Confederate flag from the state capitol after the killing of nine members of a black South Carolina congregation. This moment has also revived reporting from our K-File team here at CNN that found how in previous years Haley described the Civil War as two sides fighting for different values. One, she said, for tradition, and one for change. Joining me tonight to discuss her comments, Jamie Harrison, the former chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party, the current chair of the Democratic National Committee. Jamie, thank you so much for being here. What was your reaction uh, to Nikki Haley's comments today, acknowledging that, yes, the Civil War was indeed uh, about slavery? Well, it was classic Nikki Haley CYA, right? It is, she stepped in it and now she's trying to clean it up. But if, of course, everyone knew that it was about slavery, then of course she should have said it last night. Uh, And she's still doubling down on her freedom. The question is a freedom of what, Nikki Healy? Is it freedom to own slaves? Is that what it was? I mean, it's it's not. uh, uh, She said that this was a gotcha question. It's not a gotcha question. Any fifth grader, sixth grader can answer the question that slavery was the impetus. Uh, of of the Civil War. South Carolina, 163 years ago, December 20th, 1863, South Carolina succeeded from the nation. And the, the number one thing that they listed, it was because of slavery. She was a governor of the state for, for a number of years. She should have known that. Um, but this is, this is just who Nikki Haley is. And really, it epitomizes what MAGA extremism is all about. When you think about this, Caitlin, you have a former president, Donald Trump, who talks about, who's parroting Hitler and talking about poisoning the blood of America. You got Ron DeSantis, who said that slaves actually benefited personally because of slavery. This epitomizes uh, the the MAGA extremism that we got right now in the Republican Party. And it's sad, but it's but what we, we have to deal with. And that's why Joe Biden has to win. What you said a moment ago, don't you think Haley, Nikki Haley does, in fact, know that? Well, I, she should know it. Um, you know, again, as governor of the state of South Carolina and knowing the history of the state as it relates to the Civil War, she should have known it and she should have said it. But Nikki Haley uh, and the MAGA extremists are all about, you know, going down to the depths of extremism to get any vote that they can in order to get power. These are people who are attacking our fundamental freedoms right now in this country, 
freedom of people to, to vote for who they want to, freedom of people to control their own bodies. They, they believe in banning books. And we got a contrast here, Caitlin, in Joe Biden, who understands that this is a moment of you need to have moral clarity. You remember he got into this race because he said well, we're fighting for the soul of this nation. And if you can't stand up as a leader and just define something that any person that even lives outside of this country, you can go to London and ask what was the cause of, of the American Civil War. Nine times out of 10, they'll tell you it was slavery. And that Nikki Haley, who wants to be the president of, the, uh, of, the, of this great nation, the, the most important person in the free world, can't say that. It's a sad state uh, in terms of where the Republican Party is. Well, I'm curious what uh, she claimed that this person was a Democratic plant. She says it's because President Biden and Democrats, they're worried about running against her, that you want Donald Trump to be the, the Republican nominee. There is polling from The Wall Street Journal that shows if Nikki Haley was the nominee at a theoretical matchup, she has a 17-point lead over President Biden. I mean, would you be more concerned about a Nikki Haley being the Republican nominee over Donald Trump? Listen, if anybody knows Nikki Haley, I do. I was the chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party when she was governor. This is a woman who is extreme. There is nothing moderate about Nikki Haley. Uh, she epitomizes what MAGA extremism is all about. She believes in national abortion ban. She because she she put a ban in place here in South Carolina. So you know, Nikki Haley is not a moderate. She's a MAGA extremist. And I don't care if it's Nikki Haley, Donald Trump, or, or Ron DeSantis. The Democratic Party and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to be ready for this contest because we know that this is a contest about hope versus fear, progress versus chaos. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and, uh, are, Harris are protecting the freedoms of the American people where we're getting constant attacks from the MAGA extremists, including DNC, Nikki Haley. DNC Chairman Jamie Harrison, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. And Nikki Haley has been on the campaign trail today in multiple stops in New, Han in New Hampshire. Her rival, Chris Christie, also there weighing in on this just a few moments ago. You've got to tell the truth. And I'll make it easy for you. If someone asked me what the cause of the Civil War was... <laughs> It's easy. It's slavery. Christie went on to say that he believes Haley did not acknowledge slavery in her answer last night because she is, quote, unwilling to offend anyone by telling the truth. I want to talk about this with two top political veterans, David Axelrod, who was senior advisor to President Obama, David Urban, a Republican strategist and former Trump campaign advisor. And David Urban, I want you to listen to something that Nikki Haley just said to a voter at a town hall. They were asking her whether or not she would serve as Donald Trump's vice president, a question that she's gotten before. This is how she answered it tonight. Is it a chance to redeem yourself after last night's slavery thing? Um, would you be able to say categorically that you will not accept being Trump's vice president? I could say to you what you want to hear. And you could go check that box and go do whatever. But I'm going to continue to tell you my truth. And the truth that I have always told the truth, even when I was in the administration. President Trump and I worked well together. 
Why? Because I told him the truth. Now, if you want to talk about vice president, I will tell you this now. I've said it before. I don't play for second. I've never played for second. I'm not going to start now. She said she doesn't play for second, David. I mean, it wasn't an outright no. What do you make of that answer? Uh, you know, it's like the, the rule of holes, you know, stop digging when you're in one. Um, she, she's not, uh, listen, last night I think she blew it with the, the slavery, you know, uh, answered to her question. She, the first shots of the civil war were fired in, in South Carolina, you know, as, as, as your previous guest pointed out, she should, she should know that, um, by now. And, and look, no, no one's going to turn down being vice president, whether it may, maybe Chris Christie would turn down being vice president, but None of those other folks on the on the uh, on the campaign trail will be turned down, and I don't suspect that Nikki Haley would either. David Oxarod, I wonder what you made of not just that comment tonight about whether or not she'd be Trump's VP, but the the totality of this. Because right now, Nikki Haley needs every you know non-Trump Republican that she can get to get behind her, so people she could convince people like Chris Christie to to drop out of the race. What do you make of whether or not this does hurt her momentum? Or is it just a moment in the campaign that, that you think she moves on from? You know, Caitlin, I, uh, I said many years ago that presidential races were MRIs for the soul. And uh, whoever you are, people find out who you are. And the better you do, the more scrutiny you get, the, the more intense the screen, the scan. Uh, I think this was harmful to her. Look, Nikki Haley is an incredibly talented politician. And I think most people in politics would uh, agree on that. But the rap against her going way back to her days in South Carolina was that she is a, a strong in her confidence and fungible in her principles, that she will take positions that are the position she thinks she needs to take at any given moment, uh, and she will change. She's a shapeshifter. Uh, and this uh, this gaffe, if you want to call it that yesterday, obviously she knew that slavery was the cause of the Civil War. She didn't want to engage it because within the Republican Party, uh, you know, the looking backward at slavery and so on has become an issue. And she didn't want to affund, offend the base uh, by engaging in that discussion. So she took this sort of, uh, you know, circum, circumlocution around it. Uh, but uh, what it does is it, it raises questions about her principles and how fixed she is in her principles. And it kind of exposes her as a shape-shifting politician. I think this is, gaffes only hurt you when they expose something that is real. You know, uh, the the uh, Hillary Clinton gaffe about basket of deplorables said to the people in rural America and small town America that she disdains us. When Mitt Romney said that his 47% thing uh, back in 2012, it said to uh, people who were struggling that he didn't really care about them. Uh, and so this has the potential to really hurt her, especially at a time when she is trying to rally the anti-Trump base. But her play is to try and not uh, antagonize the Trump base while rallying the the anti-Trump base. I don't know if that's a game of twister. Any politician can ultimately win. David Axelrod, yeah. David Urban, thank you both to both of our Davids. <laughs> Meanwhile, tonight, Donald Trump has already focused on the general election, despite the fact that we are very much still in the middle of a primary. He is taking aim at President Biden in a new ad focused on the border. More with a congressman who represents the border ahead.
tonight, the Justice Department threatening legal action against the state of Texas, warning that they're prepared to sue because, as they argue, it is not its new immigration law they believe violates the Constitution. This is a law that's supposed to go into effect in March. It makes entering Texas illegally a state crime. That means that local law enforcement could arrest migrants and also gives local judges the authority to order migrants to leave the United States. Here with me tonight, Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez, who is on the Homeland Security Committee, and his 23rd district covers a large portion of the U.S. border with Mexico. So thank you, Congressman, for being here. I wonder what you make of this threat of legal action from the Justice Department. Do you agree that that immigration law is within the purview of the federal government, or do you support this new law that your state's governor signed? I think the uh, the lawyers are going to determine that, you know, essentially Texas, Texas sues the federal government, federal government sues Texas round and round they go. Uh, the only person that wins is lawyers. Meanwhile, the American public are seeing this open border crisis and are directly impacted by it. If you're a district like mine, 800 miles of the southern border, you feel it every day. But even if you're across the country, you're feeling it with the rise in fentanyl. Just a couple of days ago, you know, a flight that was headed full of migrants that was headed towards New York City got diverted to Philadelphia. I mean, right now we're talking about New York City and Chicago and El Paso and, and other parts of Texas. But very soon we'll be talking about L.A. and Denver and Philadelphia and other other parts of the country. Yeah. This border crisis does not end until we, we start enforcing our laws. Uh, it's having wide-ranging effects. I think everyone would agree with that. But on the law that the Texas governor signed, I mean, do you believe that, that state and local police should be authorized to enforce federal immigration laws? Uh, I'm, no, I'm no lawyer. I'm a, I'm a Navy cryptologist. But I would say I'd like for our local law enforcement to focus on keeping uh, their local communities safe. And I'd like for our federal uh, law enforcement officers, our Border Patrol agents, to be able to do to, to do their job. And what I'm seeing is all I'll give you an example. You know, just a few days ago in Eagle Pass, every single Border Patrol agent was in the processing center. I passed by the Uvalde checkpoint and there was a sign that said Pasale, which in, in essentially says, welcome, welcome, come on in. And so this is some of the frustration that we have. I'd like to see Border Patrol agents get back out in the field. They would like to get back out in the field. And I'd like for local law enforcement, our sheriffs, to, be, to get back to uh, taking care of their local communities. Okay. It's interesting to me that you won't say whether or not you, you support the, the law that was signed by the Texas governor, given it's raised so many questions. But the former president, uh, Donald Trump, obviously, who's the Republican frontrunner for the nominee this time, released a new ad today on immigration. It is obviously one of President Biden's weakest areas when we survey voters. This is part of that ad. While the world burns, Joe Biden has created a violent threat in our own backyard. Biden's open border has opened the floodgates to record numbers, including terrorists, fentanyl traffickers, and raises the possibility of a Hamas attack. What do you make of that? I think uh, 2024 is going to be wild. Yeah, I think you're going to see all kinds of different political ads out there. What I will say, though, is the threat is very real. This open border crisis has not only increased the threat from abroad. We're seeing it on a regular basis throughout the world. But here at home, I mean, I, I remind people of Oklahoma City bombing and what happened there. That was a, a domestic a terrorist attack that occurred because people are angry. And what you're going to see is but you're going to see politicians tap into this anger. 
I do think uh, we've heard that, you know, concern from the FBI director and from other officials. But when you see a message like that, and Trump clearly wants to be able to run on immigration, is it undermined when he's at rallies repeatedly defending his remark that, that illegal immigrants are poisoning the blood of the country, that they are destroying the fabric of the country? Is that a helpful message? Uh, it, it's all a mess. It is all a mess. And, and what is what is happening, he's tapping into an anger. People are angry. People are absolutely angry because of the high speed chases, because there's no you know, their schools are going into lockdown. Our lives are turned upside down. This is a very real anger. This isn't made up. And, and President Biden is turning a blind eye, thinking that this is a political issue that's going to go away. This is only going to get worse until the president sits down with Congress and works on a, a border security package, a national security package that ultimately gets our border under control. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see this fuel getting thrown on this fire. Well, he did send top officials to Mexico yesterday. The question of whether or not that produced anything is still an open one. Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez, thank you for joining tonight. Thank you. Up next, the Republican congresswoman who was kicked out of a theater after she caused a ruckus at risk of losing her seat. But now she is changing her strategy. More ahead. Republican congresswoman Lauren Boebert says she is switching districts ahead of the 2024 election. The ultra-conservative lawmaker is going to leave Colorado's third district, which is where she lives and currently represents to instead run for re-election in the 4th District. This is an attempt to preserve her spot in Washington and the narrow House majority. The leader of the Colorado Republican Party is not exactly supporting this move. From a party perspective, we certainly don't think it was the best move. I think she's got a serious challenge on her hands uh, trying to explain to the voters of CD4 why uh, she felt it was necessary to leave CD3 and, and uh, have a better chance at keeping her seat in Congress. Joining me now to break all of this down, CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten. Harry, obviously, Lauren Boebert had a really tough re-election the last time around. I mean, what do you make of her now switching to this? And obviously, Republicans in the state who already had Republicans running in that district are not very happy. No, they're not. And by the way, how far is she moving? Her home is way out of the 4th District. But look, last time around, she only won re-election by a little bit more than 500 votes. It, you know, it's well less than a percentage point. And her Democratic opponent last time around was running back again. She was potentially facing Republican primary challenge in the third district. So this is a move to sustain her political life. But I'm not exactly sure it will work out for her. And what does it mean for, for the third district? What's going to be left there? Because we saw the Cook, politi Cook political report, which kind of ranks how tough a race is going to be for a Democrat or Republican. It was lean GOP. Now it's Republican toss-up. Yeah, so, you know, this was a race that, if you looked at that third district, what you essentially saw was, in fact, they had previously been toss-up. They went over to lean GOP. And if you look, the third district is a district that Donald Trump won by a little less than 10 percentage points. Now Boebert's going over to the fourth district, the district that he won by a little bit less than 20 points. So the idea is she could better sustain herself in a general election. But as you mentioned, there's still a primary in Colorado's 4th District. There are at least six other Republicans that are running. So this idea that this is some magical cure for her to re-elect herself in the Congress, I'm not necessarily sure it is. Yes, the general election will be easier skating. But, but it's the fact, not clear that she'll become the nominee. That's exactly right. And that's the problem here. So Lauren Boebert, maybe she might get back into Congress. But the fact is, based upon the numbers, we just don't know yet. Hmm. Harry Anton, I know you'll keep us updated. I'm going to try to.
Thank you for that. And thank you all so much for joining us tonight. We'll be back here tomorrow night. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.